It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight presents. This is Frank's Conspiracy Hour. The Chronicle of Higher Education once described our next guest as the professor of denial. And the subheadline in that article said how a prolific academic became an advocate for some of the strangest and most odious ideas of our time. Well, there's no doubt about the fact that James Fetzer is a pretty accomplished academic. He is a a PhD. He is somebody that is published. He is somebody that has studied at uh, Ivy League universities and has taught at a at a very prestigious academic institution. He is a professor emeritus of the philosophy of science at the University of Minnesota Duluth and an author of several books and uh, someone that has been described repeatedly and I would say deservedly so, as a conspiracy theorist, unlike a lot of other people that get that title, though, I don't know that Dr. Fetzer does much to run away from that title. We'll find out for sure in just a second. Dr. Fetzer, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Oh, Frank, it's uh, my great pleasure. And yes, what I specialize in doing is bringing together groups of experts to sort these things out and take conspiracy theories from theories in the weak sense of conjectures, guesses, or rumors, to theories in the strong sense of empirically testable explanatory hypotheses like Newton's theory of gravitation, Einstein's theory of relativity, Darwin's theory of evolution, so we can sort things out, test them, and determine whether they're true or false. So you don't run away from that label conspiracy theorist at all, right? No, that's absolutely correct. Indeed, I think anyone who actually looks into these matters, whether it's JFK, 9-11, Wellstone, Sandy Hook, is going to be a conspiracy theorist or, as some would say, a conspiracy realist or a conspiracy analyst. In fact, it turns out, Frank, conspiracies are as American as apple pie. The most prosecuted crime in America is conspiracy for this or for that, where most American are economic But where I published an early article entitled Thinking About Conspiracy Theories, JFK and 9-11, using JFK as an introduction to the study of 9-11, but where I went through a then-current issue of the New York Times, and on every single page you could not understand what they were reporting unless you appreciated that it entailed a conspiracy. Now, the University of Minnesota Duluth, um, they have made clear when asked about you previously that uh, that you're retired and that they have no problem with you saying whatever you want as long as it's clear that you're speaking for yourself, not necessarily for uh, the university. Have you gotten any blowback over the years, especially the last couple of decades, because you've spoken out on such controversial manners and expressed an opinion that's so contrary uh, that's so contrary to the status quo? Have you gotten any blowback from anybody involved in the University of Minnesota Duluth? Well, what you want to appreciate, Frank, is that all faculty are essentially independent contractors. No faculty member speaks 
for the university. That's up to administrators. Only administrators speak for the university. So it's simply a common misunderstanding to think there's even an issue there. But not only was the University of Minnesota not negative about my research on JFK, which began in 1992, for example, but actually funded two conferences I held, one in Minneapolis in 1999 on the death of JFK, where I brought together 20 prominent experts on JFK and used it the basis of my second book on the assassination entitled Murder in Dealey Plaza, and then subsequently in 2003, funded a much smaller conference where I brought together the six leading experts on the whole movies, in particular the Zapruder film, mm -hmm. which led to the publication of my third book, The Great Zapruder Film Hoax. Uh, so the university actually has been very supportive. There was an associate dean in the graduate school on the Twin Cities campus who really liked my stuff, and I think that was beneficial. But then JFK is much less controversial than, say, 9-11. Right. I, Oh, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. well, well, let me begin with the JFK situation, and then uh, we can either delve into 9-11 in this conversation or maybe have a, a conversation a little closer to the anniversary in a few weeks. What do you believe um, happened with respect to the Kennedy assassination, and why did you uh, become active in it almost three decades after it occurred? Um, were you a latecomer to the JFK assassination conspiracy movement? Well, I was anchored out aboard the LPH uh, Iwo Jima, which is a helicopter carrier, as a Marine Corps officer. When the officer at the deck awakened me at 3.30 in the morning to tell me JFK had been shot, and then an hour later awakened me again to tell me they caught the guy who'd done it. He was a communist. I thought then that was pretty fast work. Today, I know why. When I returned to the United States, I began doing some casual research but it was not until 1992 when my wife came in and said, you're not going to believe this, flipped on the TV, and I saw a very distinguished-looking guy standing behind a lectern with the logo of the American Medical Association and denouncing everyone who'd done serious work on the assassination uh, and uh, promoting an interview he was doing with the two pathologists who were primarily responsible for the Bethesda autopsy and claiming this was new and scientific and so forth. Well, interviews with physicians aren't science, and it wasn't new about it, but what he was doing was abusing the journal of the AMA, of which he turned out to be the editor-in-chief, where I already knew enough about publishing and editorializing. I'd been 10 years uh, associate editor of Synthes, an international journal for epistemology, methodology, and the philosophy of science. And I knew this was all wrong, and it occurred to me that if someone of his level of distinction were to abuse his journal for political purposes, perhaps some of us with special backgrounds and abilities ought to become involved. And I followed the, the discussion in the journal and noticed a letter from a member who would subsequently resign in protest, David W. Mantic, MD, PhD, which resonated with my views. I reached out to David and suggested we collaborate on a long article or a book with which he agreed. Others would join. 
But David has turned out to be the leading expert on the medical evidence in the assassination at JFK, and we've had a long and very fruitful collaboration for 30 years now. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Dr. James Fetzer. So what do you believe happened with respect to the Kennedy assassination? Well, Frank, everything we've been told about JFK, like virtually everything we've been told about 9-11, is just uh, false and misleading and deceptive or whitewash in both cases. Uh, For example, Lee Oswald was actually standing in the doorway of the book depository when the Kennedy motorcade passed by. That means he not only cannot have been the lone demented gunman, but cannot have been one of the shooters— where we've actually identified six, believe it or not, there were assassins at six different locations in Dealey Plaza. Now, the best way to get a grip on it is to distinguish between the sponsors, the facilitators, and the mechanics. The mechanics being the shooters and their supervisors on the ground, who included, remarkably enough, George Herbert Walker Bush and Edward Lansdale. Now, the sponsors included this. These were the individuals and groups who wanted Jack out primarily because they preferred the policies of Lyndon Johnson. Though in the case of the anti-Castro Cubans, it was for revenge because they falsely believed he had betrayed them at the Bay of Pigs. But the sponsors, and it's fascinating, Frank, because each of the sponsors appeared to have put up their own shooter. The sponsors included the CIA. Jack was threatening to shatter it into a thousand pieces. The Joint Chiefs, they were upset because Jack had uh, not invaded Cuba, contrary to the unanimous recommendation. He'd gone ahead and signed a above-ground test ban treaty with the Soviet Union, contrary to the unanimous opposition. And now he was pulling our forces out of Vietnam, where they believed the stand had to be taken against the expansion of international godless communism. The the mafia was upset because uh, Bobby was cracking down on organized crime for the first time in history, bringing more indictments and convictions. Uh, Just as uh, J. Edgar Hoover, for example, who had been unable to identify organized crime, even acknowledge his existence, because just as he had sex dossiers on members of Congress, the mafia had a sex dossier on Edgar, including uh, photographs of him in compromising circumstances with his close personal aide, Clyde Tolson. Uh, the anti-Castro Cubans, I mentioned, believed he'd betrayed them at the Bay of Pigs. Uh, in addition, we had the eastern establishment surrounding the Fed. Jack had instructed the Department of the Treasury to print United States notes. I remember as a young Marine Corps officer holding one in my hand, it had a red embossed imprint. It said United States note instead of green Federal Reserve note on the ground that it was absurd for the government of the United States to pay interest to a consortium of private banks to print the currency of the United States, which could be done just as well by the Department of the Treasury. The Texas oilmen were upset by Jack because he was going to cut the oil depletion allowance, which was a fantastic tax write-off based on the claim that since oil was a finite resource, they were putting themselves out of business by pumping oil out of the ground. Mm. And finally, Israel, Jack had been at loggerhead with David Ben-Gurion, who was a founder and the first prime minister of Israel and wanted to develop nuclear weapons, which Jack opposed on the ground. It would initiate a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. 
Those were the sponsors, but the facilitators who made it all happen were of the assassination, Lyndon Johnson, and of the cover-up, J. Edgar Hoover. They, to understand the assassination, you have to go back to Los Angeles in 1960, where JFK beat LBJ for the nomination, and he invited Stuart Symington of Missouri to be his running mate. He gave him overnight to think about it. Bobby went by the Johnson suite to extend a pro forma as a gesture invitation to run with Jack and was dumbfounded when Lyndon leaped on it. He threatened to expose that JFK had Addison's disease and wasn't expected to live a long, healthy life. That among his dalliances was one with a beautiful woman who turned out to be an East German spy, information he'd obtained from Edgar. And moreover, that if he were not on the ticket, then any legislative proposal sent down by the White House would be dead on arrival because in his position as a powerful majority leader of the Senate, he'd lock them up. Well, Jack and Bobby were dismayed, but Lyndon had him boxed in and they had to accede to his demand. When one of Lyndon's wealthy backers learned of this, he was outraged. He burst into the Johnson suite cursing and swearing because now LBJ was going to help JFK become president. Bobby Baker took him into a bedroom and explained what they had in mind. He came out all smiles and said he thought that was an excellent plan. Bobby Baker would subsequently declare in public that JFK would not live out his first term and that he would die a violent death. In the course of events, Lyndon Johnson would send his chief administrative aide, Cliff Carter, down to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements mm. were in place for the assassination. Uh, the one aspect, look, I've heard uh, a lot of different theories related to the Kennedy assassination uh, in terms of motive, in terms of participants. The one aspect to your analysis of the Kennedy assassination, which is unique, which I hadn't heard from anybody else, is your contention that the Zapruder film is not genuine. Most people look at the Zapruder film as a piece of evidence to be analyzed and to take clues from. Why do you think that the Zapruder film was faked? Well, there are a couple of aspects to it. Uh, number one is, and this is a question that puzzles many, why if they were going to kill Jack, would they do it in public in, in a major city in the middle of the day? And the answer is because if they took him out at the White House, for example, or in the dead of night, no one would believe it wasn't a conspiracy. They had observers stationed all over Dealey Plaza. They knew exactly who was where, what they were doing. They would approach those who were taking photographs, take the photographs away from them. They had an FBI agent stationed at the photo plants in uh, Dallas for two weeks after the assassination. They took any photos or films related thereto and left a little card saying why they'd taken them. Uh, they stole the body. I mean, this was absolutely indispensable by Texas law. It was a requirement there be an inquest held in Texas. They had a wonderful medical examiner by the name of Earl Rose who did an autopsy on uh, J.D. Tippett, which was just a masterpiece. And if he'd allowed to do it on JFK, it would have been exposed that he'd been shot multiple times in the throat from in front, in the right temple from in front, in the back, five and a half inches below the collar, just to the right of the spinal column, uh, and also in the back of the head, uh, where the first two of those shots were widely reported on radio and television that day, Frank. If you go back to, say, NBC, you see it now, 
you'll see David Brinkley, among others, reporting the shot to the throat, that Malcolm Perry, M.D., who performed a simple tracheostomy incision through the small, clean puncture wound, described it three times as a wound of entry. The bullet was coming at him. And that later, when Malcolm killed him, the acting press secretary announced that the president was dead. He explained it was a simple matter of a bullet right through the head pointing to his right temple, which would be widely reported later, attributed to Admiral George Berkeley, the president's personal position. So those who were listening to radio and television that day were getting the report of two shots of President suffered, both of which had been fired from in front. So that later in the evening, when the story started to trickle in, that the FBI and the Secret Service were claiming only three shots had been fired from above and behind, Frank McGee, who was nobody's fool, said this is incongruous. How can the man have been shot from in front, from behind? This was a problem the Warren Commission confronted. But the fact is that uh, if it hadn't been done in public, where they could control all the evidence, where they could steal the body and then subject it to manipulation, uh, they actually offloaded the body in a body bag at Andrews Air Force Base into a helicopter and flew it to Walter Reed, where the best physicians in the military removed metal fragments from the multiple shots because the different shooters were using their own preferred weapons. And then it was transported in a peakish gray shipping casket to the back of the Bethesda morgue, where it was already undergoing autopsy when Jackie Kennedy showed up in the gray Navy ambulance with a bronze ceremonial casket. All eyes had been fixated on when they offloaded at Andrews Air Force Base, not realizing that the actual body was being offloaded on the opposite side and flown to Walter Reed. So it was really a very elaborate plan. And it, when when you sort out the amount of fabricated evidence, and this is where David Mantic became especially important, he told me, and this was already in uh, November, December of 1992, that he had permission from Burke Marshall, who was a Kennedy family attorney, then a professor emeritus at Yale School of Law, to utter the archives and study the autopsy materials that he believed he would be able to establish that there was evidence of a second shot to the head and that the autopsy x-rays had been altered. And indeed, he was able to accomplish both. He established an area which he identified as an area P for patch that was very significant at the back of the head of the skull and the lateral cranial x-ray. That's a skull x-ray taken from the right side, where it occurred to me that in relation to the Zapruder film, since it was evident that they had done so much editing in early frames from 313, where you see what's supposed to be the headshot forward, they have actually blacked it out where a group of Hollywood film restoration experts have been kind of dumbfounded where they got a forensic copy from the National Archives, which is just astoundingly clear and detailed. And they blew it up and they could see how amateurishly they had blacked out the blowout at the back of the head, which we had, you know, six or eight physicians. We had well, witnesses in Dealey Plaza, we had even had some of the medical techs at Bethesda identify a fist-sized blowout at the back of the head. Well, they covered it up by using a material that was either too dense to be human bone or else by overexposing the area. So David identified, and it occurred to me 
looking at the film that perhaps while they covered it up early by painting in black, they blow up the frame, paint it out in black, then shrink back the frame and reshoot the sequence of the frames. Perhaps they'd overlook that it would be visible elsewhere. And I found in frame 374, 375, you can actually see it. This is where Jackie's starting to climb out. Now, that's an obvious indication then that they'd altered because they blacked out the blood at the back of the head. John P. Costello, another PhD who joined my research group, what a background in electromagnetism and expert on the properties of light and images of moving objects, did a completely brilliant tutorial, which you can access on my assassinationscience.com or assassinationresearch.com websites where he determined that the film was like 98% technically flawless, but that they'd committed certain blunders that proved without any doubt it had been massively edited, including they took out the Stamets freeway sign, apparently because it had a bullet hole in it that was inconsistent with the three-shot scenario. And when they replaced it, they didn't take into account uh, types of distortion in films, and they put it in improperly. So John created a you know a gif where you can see the Zapruder the 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 Stemmons freeway sign where it ought to have been and how it's offset in the yeah. uh, in 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 the in the actual video, which is relatively trivial except it's conclusive proof of alteration. And Frank, more significantly, they merged two shots. The, the driver, Greer, who was uh, the only one who could have saved JFK's life once they entered the kill zone in Dealey Plaza, actually pulled the limousine to the left and to a halt. He was given a fist signal from the, someone known as a Cuban on the street to stop, and he actually jostled. He hit the brake so hard that everyone in the car was thrown forward. Jack had already been hit twice in the back, as I've described, and in the throat, a bullet that passed through the windshield. But after it stopped, then he was hit in the back of the head by a shot fired from the Dal Tax. He, he was wearing a corset. Jack had this spinal injury from World War II, PT-109, saving a fellow sailor. So he, he wore this corset-like structure as a back brace. That meant it really limited his mobility in the vehicle. And it, when he was hit in the back of the head, he slumped forward. Jackie eased him back. I was looking him right in the face when he was hit in the right temple by a, by a, the bullet that blew his brains out the back of the head and caused the, the fist side blowout, uh, and then slumped to the left. What they did when they edited the film, and they took it to Hawkeye Works, a secret CIA laboratory adjacent to Kodak headquarters in Rochester, they merged the two shots together so that all you have left of the first slumping forward, and we have many witnesses who observe this, but it's not in the film. Uh, there's only one frame forward from 312 to 313, and then you have this violent back and to the left. Well, David Lifton may have been the first to identify that something was wrong here. He actually took a large uh, scale blows up of these frames up to, to Caltech. I was born in Pasadena. I mean, Caltech is among the most prestigious scientific uh, institutions in the world. And confronted with Richard Feynman, the very famous physicist, and Feynman just took a ruler and applied it using a fixed feature of the limousine. And he determined that the you had forward motion of the head from 312 to 313, and then this violent back into the left. But no one in Dealey Plaza witnessed that violent back into the left, Frank, which occurred 
because they edited out too many frames. In other words, mm. it was a rush job. Uh, he was killed on Friday. The original was taken, it was developed in uh, Dallas. Uh, they put allegedly three copies. I believe there was actually a fourth. There's a missing number, the very first copy, which I believe was sold to H.L. Hunt for $100,000. And then they took the original to the National Photographic Interpretation Center in Washington, D.C., where they have all the technology to blow out satellite photographs from little tiny micro docs to big, you know, so they can study them. Well, that's just what you need if you had a little. It was a eight millimeter, already split film. The camera uses a 16 millimeter film and it films down one side called the A side. And then you have to take it out, flip it over and do the B side. Well, each side has about 500 frames altogether if you were to shoot it completely. Uh, they took it back to uh, the National Photographic Interpretation Center, and we had one team of experts who were preparing briefing boards for the shots, and those would have been pretty accurate. Mm. But then Sunday, the following day, an agent who called himself William Smith came down from Rochester with a 16-millimeter unsplit film, made the substitution where they'd altered the film in various ways I've described and others yet not mentioned. Uh, uh, Jim, let me let me. I mean, there's a lot that we could we could spend hours on the Kennedy assassination uh, alone, and uh, maybe you'll come back in the in the future. And uh, I, I wanted to get into the. Paul Wellstone uh, theory that you have about his death. I don't know that we're going to have time for that uh, today. But one thing that I did want to uh, I did want to ask you about, and this issue has been thrust right back into the spotlight because of the recent uh, the recent court cases involving Alex Jones, is your theory about what happened at uh, at Sandy Hook. Now, uh, Sandy Hook was. The uh, the deadliest school shooting that we'd ever had. And uh, Alex Jones had raised questions and actually stated that he thought this was some sort of a false flag operation. Some of the family members uh, took Jones to court and uh, they received a major judgment recently in a case. There's going to be another case coming up in uh, in Connecticut. This was one of the the father of one of the Sandy Hook children uh, blasting Alex Jones. Can you describe last nine and a half years of the living hell that I and others have had to endure because of the negligence and the recklessness of Alex Jones. Now, um, you have also said that uh, that Sandy Hook may not have happened. You published a book titled Nobody Died at Sandy Hook. It was a FEMA drill to promote gun control. Now, the father of of one of these little boys that was killed at Sandy Hook sued for defamation and got a, a $450,000 judgment against you. Your book publisher personally apologized to the Posner family and agreed to take your book out of circulation. Now, uh, I can understand. You're a, a very smart guy academically. I can see the amount of research that you put into issues. I can see how you structure an argument. You're obviously a military veteran. How in the world can you think that the Sandy Hook shooting didn't happen when when there are family members whose lives have been irreparably damaged saying that it did? I mean, you really think these people are all actors or something? Well, sure, they're posers. They're making a lot of money out of this, Frank. 
Uh, the 26 surviving families, we calculated that the sympathetic but gullible Americans contributed between 27 and $130 million in donation. Divide that by 26. That's one to five mil for faking having lost a kid at Sandy Hook. I think there are a lot of Americans who'd go along with that. This but so did the children Sophia's, not really die? Did the children not really die in your view? The children were all fabrications. You may recall... Uh, so you, you don't uh, think Wayne Carver, the medical examiner, said that we didn't even allow the parents to come into contact with the kids, but identify them on the basis of photographs. That was appropriate because they only Jim, Jim, for the most part existed Jim, in the form of photographs. No, but Frank, Jim, Frank, you gotta you gotta let me lay this out a little bit because there's such a widespread impression it was real, and it's just uh, well, it was real. It wasn't real. It was a a FEMA drill for crying out loud. Frank, I did the same thing I did with JFK. I brought together 13 experts, including six PhDs, to sort things out. We discovered the school had been closed by 2008. It was loaded with asbestos and other biohazard damage by a hurricane. There was even a flood in the area in 2007 that did further damage. Uh, There were no students or teachers there. It was a two-day FEMA drill presented as mass murder to promote gun control. We even found the FEMA manual, Frank. We even found a FEMA manual. And everything that occurred on the ground corresponded. You had a sign there. Everyone must but, check in. So how do, you explain, right in how do you explain the jury's decision in that $450,000 defamation judgment in favor of, of the father of six-year-old Noah Posner? You mean against me? Yes. Well... That's because uh, I wasn't uh, the judge. This was a divided trial. It's just like Alex Jones. Uh, Frankly, there there has been no judicial determination that anybody died at Sandy Hook. All of these cases have been decided on procedural grounds, and that includes Alex Jones' trial. I sought to intervene in all three of his trials, and you're right. We've only seen the first. There are two more to come to point out. They've never established that anybody died at Sandy Hook. It's all been based on presupposition, taking for granted a private media coverage as though that narrative had to be true. But, Jim, who who do you think these children were that were buried? Well, I mean, they weren't buried. They're they're mostly empty graves. They may have some rocks in them. Uh, One has an African-American doll in it. I mean, I'm just telling you that they they, Frank— until you get into the evidence, it's easy to be played by the media because everyone's insisting on this phony story. But let me tell you what happened to me in Wisconsin. They have a summary judgment procedure that enables the judge to determine based on his subjective opinion whether or not evidence is reasonable or facts are true or not. In a normal summary judgment process, You have to establish there are no disputed facts so that the judge simply applies the law. In Texas, for example, you'd have to take for granted everything that I as a defendant assert to wit that it was a FEMA drill, nobody died. I even have an FBI report for a consolidated crime for 2012 showing zero deaths in Newtown. Jim, I'm sorry. Uh, Jim, I have to to end it there. And I'm I'm trying to – first of all, we're out of time. But, you know, I try to be polite uh, to everybody. But – I find that to be incredibly bizarre and sad that you really think this way. And I, and I, I take you at your word that you do believe this and are not 
doing this for attention or for money or something. But I don't know how you tell the parents of a five-year-old or a six-year-old that have been that have been killed that, that their child didn't exist. And uh, I'm glad that the jury in this Wisconsin case uh, found against you. And I'm all for uh, presenting all points of view. But in my view, this is not a a point of view. Uh, this is this is pretty sick and disturbing that that you would that you would say this. And I, and I don't mean to be rude at all. But I find this to be absolutely atrocious. And maybe I'm at fault for, you know, for inviting inviting you on for a discussion like this. But I um, I don't know how you can you can I, I hate to say this, but I don't know how you can live with yourself saying these sort of things. I appreciate the time and uh, thank you.